Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. And a really interesting episode we have for you this week where we're going to be talking about why we can't breathe underwater. Um, We're going to be speaking to a biologist who studies lung development and evolution and trying to figure out how we lost this absolutely amazing skill that other mammals have, but we don't. If you'd like to contact us on the program, you can email us science at newstalk.com or you can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. And uh, we'll kick off the show as we always do, looking back at some of the more interesting stories from the week's science. And joining us is Owen. He is a science communicator and biochemist and Dr. Jasmine Fairfield from University of Galway. Jasmine, our first story has to do with death cap mushrooms. That's right. So death caps are the deadliest mushroom in the world, uh, not in the cool sense, in the mortality sense. And researchers <laughs> from Sun Yat-sen University in China have actually found a possible antidote to the death cap mushroom. Um, this is really exciting because the death cap mushroom, its scientific name is Amanita phylloides. It's responsible for 90% of mushroom-related deaths globally. And this is for two reasons. One is that when the death cap is really young, uh, it can look like straw mushrooms, which are delicious, <laughs> which are often found in things like spring rolls, stir fries. And unfortunately, the death cap, not only does it resemble this delicious mushroom, um, but when it's cooked, the toxin in death caps isn't broken down. So some mushrooms, when you cook them, can become less toxic. Um, Unfortunately, not the case for the death cap mushroom. I see. But researchers have found uh, this. It's actually a medical imaging dye called indocyanine green um, that can act as an antidote to the death cap mushroom. So they found that in mice, basically, if they gave indocyanine green to the mice four hours after they had had death cap mushrooms, then some of the liver and kidney damage that mushrooms usually cause could be prevented and it improves survivability even, which is obviously key. Um, When they gave this to the mice eight or 12 hours after, it didn't really help as much. So presumably by that point, the mushroom had kind of already started to take effect and there there was less the antidote could do. But what's really cool about this effect coming from a medical imaging dye is that means it's already approved for use in humans in a lot of countries, right? So this is kind of skipping a lot of the regulatory steps that would usually come with developing a new antidote to something like a poisonous mushroom. Has this dye been used as a medical application before or is it normally used to to make things visible as dyes tend to be? Yeah, it's generally used in in imaging um, and to like increase contrast in medical imaging. So yeah, it hasn't been used in this way before as an antidote. Um, You would obviously still need a large scale study to look at whether we get the same effect in humans. Um, But it's really exciting because yeah, the death cap mushroom is extremely common and it's extremely deadly, hence the name. So if we can try to reduce either the mortality rate from it or even just the liver and kidney damage that people that accidentally consume these mushrooms have, that would be fantastic. Yeah, when whenever I've gone mushroom picking, um, the death cap is the cautionary tale to anyone. And, and you know, so many times I've looked at what's in my hands and I thought, it's not really worth the risk. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what this is, whether this is something I can eat or not, so forget about it. Even if you love mushrooms, it's, it's something to be aware of. Uh, our second story, Owen, has to do with women in research, probably not um, particularly a new finding, but um, I suppose the extent of it and uh, the fact that it's a much larger study, I suppose, is a little bit depressing. Yes, Jonathan. So there's a well-documented gap between the observed number of contributions between women and men in science over the decades. I go one particular historical case would be that of Rosalind Franklin and the X-ray photo, which led to 
DNA double helix um, discovery, Watson and Crick receiving the Nobel Prize and her contribution not really being recognised. Now, recently, even Jennifer Doudna has, uh, who was uh, behind the discovery of CRISPR-Cas9, has spoken about how she felt she was being relegated when it came to the commercial use of her um, actual product and her discovery. So it's 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 obviously not a surprise, nothing new, but this is worrying, I think, now for it's still going on. So what they found in previous studies up to now is that some of the reasons why women were seen to be credited less in science than men was that perhaps they were working in less welcoming environments, um, have greater family responsibilities, or maybe different position in the lab. Um, and even they were saying that, well, maybe actually it's not that they were being more, they were undervalued. However, what this research project did was they looked at publication databases and they were able to study 10,000, just under 10,000 research teams over a four-year period. They looked at 128,000 plus individuals across these teams, matched them to 39,000 plus journal articles and 7,000 plus patents. Most importantly, in this study, they were able to actually say whether each contributor was male or female and match it up with their position in the lab. So this allowed all the authors then they could calculate for each individual whether or not they received credit or not, given their gender differences. Now, key right. finding, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of numbers. This is a big study, a big, big study. And I mean, the key finding which they took back here was that if credit was defined as being named as an author, women account for 34.8.5% of the authors on a team. However, they make up half of the members of the team. So there's a gap there. The second key find is that if you took a um, credit being as defined as the likelihood of being listed as an author, there was a 13% gap between women and men for authors. And if it came to patents, it was a 58% gap. Wow. I mean, it, it's, it's quite incredible, really, the difference here. Now, um, I think, and I know I, I spoke with Jess and Mary, but this, I think this is very concerning because for a number of reasons, you know, we want to attract more and more females into science. Um, but this is actually seeing the ones who are going in there, they're, they're leaving research or they're not being encouraged to go into research. So it's a uh, very, very concerning. I mean, Jessamyn, do you want, I mean, do you have some <laughs> yeah. strong views? Uh, of course I have very strong views, um, which I'll try to cut short for the purposes of radio. But um, yeah, I mean, this is, these sort of results are depressing, but not surprising um, to me at least. I do think that it, exactly like you said, Owen, you know, we have to think about not just are we recruiting women into science, but what's the environment for them like once they get there? And are we doing enough to support women who are already there? But I also think in the context of the COVID pandemic, you know, that hit people with caregiving responsibilities so much harder in terms of their professional um, output. And, you know, like this study points out, it's not even just do you have the time to do the work? It's are you then recognized for doing the work? And we have to make sure that we're actually giving credit where it's due. Absolutely. And this underscores a long history of papers showing the inequality in academia. And if anybody says the word meritocracy, I swear to God, because a meritocracy is fantastic in an idea. But if everyone has different starting points and different burdens, like if you and I were to run a race for a kilometre, Jessamine, and on top of your back was a three kilo sack of potatoes, then that isn't really a fair race. So um, I've just I've had so many of these conversations and I see it in academia all the time and on Twitter, people saying we should just recognize the best. And it's and that's like, that's fine. But your race was a third the distance of mine and you weren't wearing a sack of potatoes. Um, right. Our third. So I feel very strongly about this as well. Our third story um, has to do with dream gloves adjustments. I have to sort of suspend a bit of um skepticism here. What what exactly are these dream gloves and what is the claim made? 
So this is a fantastic story. Um, it is about the Dormio Dream Glove, which was developed at MIT, um, and what it can do in terms of incubating specific dreams in people, which then increase their creativity. Now, when I first read this as a headline, I was like, "What? Um, what the dream? What the Dream Glove does is it's actually it just, just sounds stupid <laughs> saying that sentence, doesn't it? It sounds like you're on an infomercial for something on Instagram. What the Dream Glove does for you, so it tracks what sleep stage you're in by just measuring your heart rate and your muscle tone. So it's actually a pretty simple device um, that they've developed. But what's cool about it is it can measure what stage of sleep you're in. So the researchers with this study at MIT and Harvard were looking for uh, participants who are going into the N1 stage of sleep, which is basically like right as you're falling asleep, you can still kind of process information coming in from the outside, but like your mind is freer, you're starting to have those really, really vivid like falling asleep dreams um, that we often don't remember unless we're like suddenly awoken. Um, and so this N1 stage of sleep is also thought to be associated with creativity, but that had never really been proven before. You know, there were stories about people like Salvador Dali and Thomas Edison who would like start to take a nap and then like wake up right before falling completely asleep and then do really creative work. But there was no scientific basis for this until this study. So basically they had volunteers taking a nap um, with the dream glove and while they were drifting off, they received a series of audio prompts. So initially, as they're starting to fall asleep, the audio prompt said, you know, think about trees while you fall asleep. And then the glove let them go into this N1 stage of sleep for five minutes. And then the recording would sort of wake them up and ask them to speak out loud about what they were experiencing and then have them go back to sleep. So this happened sort of several times over the course of 45 minutes. So this is the targeted part, right, is think about trees um, and they would ask them, you know, what are what are you experiencing? And the people who were asked to think about trees were often having dreams about trees. But then after the participants woke up, they asked them to do lateral thinking exercises. Now, this is a way of measuring creativity that and stuff like, you know, what are several alternative uses for a tree? Or what are actions that are associated with trees? Or can you sit and write a short story about trees? Um, lateral thinking exercises, children are really great at them. Um, people who do improv are really great at them, so everyone should take improv classes, um, but many adults aren't that good at them compared to children, unless they've been told to dream. Um, so basically, these, these lateral thinking exercises were then evaluated for creativity, and the kind of stuff they were looking for was what's called semantic distance. So creativity is associated with coming up with more concepts that are further apart in terms of their meaning. Like, yeah. you know, leaves are more related to a tree than a toothpick is related to a tree, even though they're both kind of related. Um, and so in addition to the volunteers who had these prompts, they also had a few control groups. You know, they had people that just took a nap without a prompt and were woken up a few times. They had people that were staying awake and just told to think about trees. And they had people that were staying awake and told to pay attention to their thoughts. So sadly, not everyone got to use the dream glove. Um, but what the researchers found in the end is that people who had these targeted dreams about trees scored 78% higher on creativity compared to the wow. people who stayed awake just observing their thoughts. They were 63% higher than people who stayed awake and were thinking about the trees and 48% better than people who just took a nap. So naps can boost creativity, but also this kind of targeted, focused dreaming can increase creativity. And it's really interesting, like when you think about having that kind of level of control over your dreams, um, because that's not something that most of us have unless you're a lucid dreamer, um, which is possible to learn. 
But uh, I'm, I'm sad to say the Dream Glove is not commercially available, but I think it's interesting to imagine a point where we might be able to have more control over accessing those states of creativity. I think if they need someone to do the voiceover, you are a sure thing um, for, for the advertisement campaign. The Dream oh, and, Glove. Oh, and our final story uh, has to do with bears in the woods. Bears in the woods, bear blood and hibernation. So in simple terms for us, most of us think hibernation is simply going to sleep. And many would think it's a quite a lovely thing to do for a winter. But in reality, it's a much more complex biochemical and physiological kind of um, action, which uh, certain animals can do. So when animals hibernate, their body temperature, heart rate and breathing rate all drop. They all they do this to survive harsh winters. And, you know, when the food is scarce and the weather is bad. The bears in question of this study actually are Swedish uh, brown bears, and they hibernate for between five and seven months. During this time, the bears are able to recycle proteins and urine, meaning they don't actually have to go to the toilet, which is quite impressive. They break down fat stores, and that gives them food and gives them water so they can stay hydrated. But what wasn't fully understood is how is it that bears who are immobile for so long, why don't they develop blood clots? Because when we think of humans and, you know, this idea of long-term immobility, whether it's from an injury or whether it's from bed rest or even long-term flying, we think about the idea that you actually develop clots. Um, So one of the problems is deep vein thrombosis that was seen across, you know, long-haul flights. And, you know, they looked at this and that can occur because of certain medical conditions or, you know, people always associate with the idea of long flights, there's a risk you don't move. But the twist which was seen here, which was quite interesting in humans to link it to bears, is that sufferers of spinal cord injury, despite the initial period when they're actually first injured, after that first few weeks, they actually don't seem to um, develop clots. Now, the research in bears took blood samples from 13 bears during the winter months during their hibernation and during the summer months. And what they found was that there was clotting factors, platelets, which were much lower during hibernation than they were during the summer. They went a bit further and found out that this was actually a protein called heat shock protein 47. So uh, incredibly, it was 150th the levels during hibernation than during summer. They transferred this research on into humans and found that in people who had suffered from spinal cord injury, they also had lower levels of that. And by doing a study on 10 people who were actually otherwise healthy they put them in bed rest for a month they saw drops in heat shock protein there as well okay so so we now see there's some sort of mechanism um that the body adapts to a lack of movement and and manages to overcome this clotting problem really interesting it seems that the the, it is very interesting next question is how but the implications they're looking at here is in the future potentially drugs could be designed that would actually allow for uh people to for a more balance between bleeding and clotting or even stop clotting happening in the first place Amazing. Well, Owen Murphy, biochemist and science communicator, and Dr. Jessamyn Fairfield from the University of Galway, thank you so much for your time. Now, I don't know if you saw, but um, one man this week broke the record for the longest time living underwater. Uh, he, he was at 74 days at the time of reading the article, so I guess he's probably near the 78th or ne- nearly the 80th day at the bottom of a lagoon. Now, rather unimpressively, He's in a sort of underwater chalet and he can read books and so on. So it's not really um, the, the challenge that I thought it was when I read the headline. But we don't live underwater anymore. Our, our ancient ancestors may have, but we have long lost the ability to breathe underwater. Why is that? Well, Ryan Kearney is an organismal biologist at Gettysburg College, Pennsylvania. He specializes in the ecology, evolution and development of amphibians. 
And he's here to help me figure out why humans can't breathe underwater. Welcome to the program, Ryan. Um, before we go into the, the question at hand, tell me a little bit about your work. What, what do you study? Thanks so much for having me. My topic of study is largely focusing on comparing aspects of development between different uh, groups of amphibians, frogs, salamanders primarily. Um, and one thing that we've really gravitated towards is trying to understand uh, respiratory structures, how uh, lungs develop, um, what are the rules for the formation of lungs, and even somewhat more arcane aspects of how embryos without lungs are capable of respiring, and, and what are the rules of gas exchange that exist for, for different times of, of development. Yeah, I'm somewhat rusty on the, the time scales, but our ancient ancestors lived in the sea. We're pretty sure about that. Um, and at some point, we must have been in a sort of midway stage, as many uh, amphibians are, where we could do both. That's, that's the guess, right? Do we know that for sure? Uh, yeah, we have a, a fantastic fossil record as well as living outgroups that are related to us as tetrapods that, that breathe with lungs. Um, one of those outgroups is actually a group of fish called lungfish, and they have lungs. Um, as well, there's other uh, what are called ray-finned fish, um, uh, the much larger group of what you mostly think of as fish that have something similar to the lung called the air bladder that regulates their buoyancy in the water. And recent molecular evidence has really shown us that that air bladder is made the same way as the lung. So we now say that those structures are the same by descent and that the lung is a modified air bladder um, that allows us to have terrestrial respiration. Right. Okay. And so um, when you look at some of these amphibians uh, or, or reptiles that have um, moved onto land, a lot of the time we we do see sort of, is it vestigial, the right word? Um, pieces of uh, anatomy that are no longer used, um, you know, such as legs on snakes and, um, and so on. Do we, um, do we see anything like that in humans or is, is it so far back in our past that we don't have uh, sort of the remnants of what might be gills anywhere? Well, uh, interestingly, we, we do. Um, wow. And so this is a bit of a surprise. Uh, but because of the way human embryos go through very similar stages of all of all vertebrates, really, um, and even further back for for wider relationships, we we have similar patterns in our early development, and this is really uh, played out within the head. In the formation of our head, we have a series of uh, these these really discernible arches of tissue that come down that are going to form different bones of our face. Um, and have really interesting cell populations that are doing very dynamic activities within them. I'm going to post on Twitter a video of a, a sort of a sped up version of this, which I, I saw on the internet probably a decade ago now, and it really stuck with me how our face is nothing like our face uh, as we develop <laughs> yeah. in the early ages, right? It just comes together in this way. Our eyes move all over the place. Our nose appears out of nowhere. Our yeah. face c comes together. And, and, and that's why we have that cleft. Uh, we have that palate. And some people that doesn't come together well and they have a cleft palate. It's just fascinating how this face emerges yeah. out of just what, what seem like weird, you know, pieces that shouldn't be where they are and then they just kind of stick together it's remarkable it's like these blobs of tissue that come down and seal up around the midline yeah and then you can see the perforations of the you know the outside of the nose the external nares and then like the mouth doesn't form until later as it's breaking through of, of making tissue 
Um, but one thing that that is conserved are these regions between those bulges, which are in us, um, they, they largely don't contribute to any significant anatomical divisions. But in fish, those are the gills. Uh, those are the, the gill arches. We have one that's persistent, and that's the eustachian tube. So if you have a, a clogged ear and you pinch your nose and blow out as a diver, or if you yawn, you can open that back up. That's a connection between our pharynx and the, uh, the external ear, which is our one persistent gill arch, um, although it doesn't have any, any respiratory gills within it. Um, and so we do have some of this baggage uh, in terms of our anatomy from our ancient um, uh, gill-bearing ancestors uh, that does show up within our development, does persist as these vestiges that don't have the same function for respiration. Um, and I mean, one thing that's interesting when you look across vertebrates is that they're, they're really capable of uh, breathing through a lot of different structures. So we have uh, gills within vertebrates. We have lungs, obviously. But we also have a lot of examples of vertebrates breathing through random things, such as their tails um, or uh, of many groups through their skin. Um, and, and this variation in where you can breathe, your, what we call the respiratory integument, uh, is one of the remarkable features of how an anatomy can be kind of modular. Physiology can be modular. We can, we can make up uh, new ways of doing things so long as we follow the basic rules of creating uh, a decreasing concentration gradient of oxygen coming in and carbon dioxide going out. Wow. That is so cool and fascinating. So, so we, we see the remnants of these gills, and obviously it um, it was just advantageous to us um, to prosper on land. Obviously, we probably had some branches of our evolution that that that, that did better in water or whatever. But um, humans uh, adapted well to their environment, thrived, and so on, and that's why we live on land. It's why we don't need those gills anymore. But what is it that's actually stopping us? So when we return from the water, we obviously choke and drown if we try and breathe in water. <laughs> but there's oxygen in there. Like it's, as I said in the in the promo, it's, it, you know, it's the O in H2O. Why is right. it so hard for us to extract that oxygen from water compared to from air? What's stopping us? Well, you know, clearly the, the vast majority of animal life is, is better at it than we are. Uh, in that we have life in the oceans that is extremely diverse and capable of respiring, getting that oxygen. And their cells are no different from ours in needing that oxygen to drive, to make an energy available from their diet that will then drive all their metabolic processes. Um, but our plumbing is just wrong. And so uh, the function of a gill is to run blood in the opposite direction of water and to strip out as much oxygen in the course of that what is called a countercurrent exchange as possible to maximize the amount of oxygen is taken back up into the circulating circulatory system of like a fish um, and in the process also of depositing as much carbon dioxide as possible back into the water uh, and this is the same thing that goes on within our lungs but we just don't have that same countercurrent mechanism that uh, a gill bearing fish would have um, so that's one of our major obstacles. Now, some people have uh, experimented in um, in therapeutics and and in and in rodents at looking at highly highly oxygenated liquids, these perfluorocarbons, which yeah. 
uh, are able to deliver a concentration gradient of really steep concentration gradient of oxygen and deliver it into the blood system through our lungs. Uh, and so that's one potential avenue, but there's some real problems with getting that carbon dioxide back out into the perfluorocarbons at the rate that we need to. Um, and so it's not possible to really respire liquid yet, even with perfluorocarbon uh, respiration as a, as a potential alternative. There's some really ingenious biomedical ideas uh, from, from the engineering world uh, patent applications for ways to deal with this carbon dioxide problem um, and to to sufficiently remove that. But right now we can't respire out that carbon dioxide using using something like a highly oxygenated liquid. Is there um a required compression as well to 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 circulate the liquid? Because I'd heard about these um poor fluorocarbons that um th- that basically it's there's it's like a it's almost like liquid oxygen and e- that we we could theoretically extract enough oxygen to breathe but the, our lungs can't inflate and deflate um because they don't have the there's no muscle there to do that. Is yeah, it, is, I mean is that is that one of one of the other issues. Not that it's a goal for for birds right now, but they probably would be much better at it because right. their lungs are adapted as kind of like a a, a radiator. It, they, it comes in and then goes out in a unidirectional flow, uh, and so the the gas exchange goes across kind of like a fish gill in that countercurrent mechanism across a, a respiratory integument. We have what's called tidal respiration, just like low tide, high tide. We breathe in a gas mixture that's higher in oxygen. We breathe out a gas mixture that is relatively higher in carbon dioxide that still has oxygen in it. That's why you can do mouth-to-mouth uh, resuscitation. Um, and so just the mechanics of our plumbing can't necessarily uh, do enough of this tidal respiration to exchange those molecules right. as needed for us. Um, now, you know, people have been diving for a, for a really long time with compressed air. Um, as a as a way of you know keep, keeping people alive underwater, um, and then there's you know additional restrictions physiologically on that um, in terms of how long you can spend underwater. Yeah, I, it's funny when when I was doing biology, I heard that you know that we breathe out CO two, and I thought that we just you know for a long time I thought just we we breathed out pure CO two, and I I couldn't figure that out. Yeah. Um, so when um, we look at animals like whales for example or or lots of other seafaring creatures that need to breathe uh, air um they can stay underwater for hours at a time and yet we are lousy at this i mean really really poor four minutes would be an amazing achievement for the average person right there'll be well you know there'll be something to achieve why are we so bad at that why why can't we extract oxygen better through our lungs because presumably we don't take all the oxygen out of one breath, do we? Like, yeah. what is it that's happening in our lungs when we go underwater and we start to feel like, what? What is that? Is that a, a poisoning of carbon dioxide, or is, or is, are we not getting enough oxygen? What's going on? Now, uh, it it is a, a little bit of both, but um, the limits of human endurance when it comes to free diving has really been pushed as people take on more and more extreme deep dives and are able to, not through an evolutionary process, but through training and modifying their own physiology, push the envelope. Uh, And that remains remarkable, exceptionally dangerous, but remarkable to see the limits that people are able to push 
when it comes to free diving. But then over evolutionary timescales, we have a sort of much longer period of opportunity to select for better and better free diving abilities. And that has been done as the life aquatic has been readopted by multiple groups of, of vertebrates, multiple groups of tetrapods that are already living on land. Um, so we have it in marine reptiles like the the ichthyosaurs or the the uh, you know what looks like Nessie Loch Ness monster the the plesiosaurs. We have it in uh, of course marine mammals where they've gone back and and we have it in in sea snakes and in all of those groups as far as we're aware none of them have re-evolved gill respiration. They all have some form of tidal respiration. And so how that, come they can do that so much better than we can. Like, is there <laughs> enough oxygen? If I were to take a deep breath, I mean, it's clear that there is. If I take a deep breath, it's clear that there must be enough oxygen in that to keep me alive for thirty minutes, because that's what freedivers do. And yet, after four minutes, I'm dying, or two minutes. Yeah. yeah. So uh, they have ways of changing both their circulatory system so that they're not using overusing energy to draw oxygen off of their lungs um, they have ways of modifying the ribs so that they don't necessarily collapse um, or so that they can voluntarily collapse so that they're at depth and not pushing against that extreme external pressure and they have some mechanisms of uh, dealing with this problem that uh, humans have had to deal with for a while called decompression or the bends uh, where if you're uh, basically in a compressed air environment for whatever reason, diving being one of the, the most common, and decompress too quickly, you'll get something called decompression sickness. And this is due to not oxygen, but typically nitrogen gases that will uh, leave your circulatory system, enter into your tissues, and then as you decompress, it'll basically... Uh, phase change back into a gas and create these bubbles. And those bubbles can be exceptionally painful um, and can lead to, to not only debilitating diseases, but also death, depending on where they form. Yeah. Um, and and it is a, it's a well-known phenomenon that you, you get drilled into if you do your... Um your your diving certification. So what about the, the future, um, Ryan? Like, is it possible that we might find a way to, to breathe seawater? Um, because, you know, it's it, I, I'm sure it's not just my dream. I'm sure it's lots of people's dream to be able to yeah. explore <laughs> the oceans without dying. I mean, that would be fantastic. Um, so, so, you know, is there an, a way that you've seen or you've heard of that, that, that might be possible to engineer a, a way of breathing underwater? Um, there certainly are a lot of creative engineering approaches that have been taken in order to get over the issues that we have uh, with the decompression sickness and with the gas exchange. Uh, these have included things like liquid respiration, um, as well as uh, pressurized suits that don't then require uh, a decompression step. Uh, but they're clunky, expensive, and and pretty risky. Yeah. Um, as a biologist, you know my perspective, my my appreciation too is is to see what evolution has come up with. And so it's very interesting in the exceptionally successful groups of of whales and and uh, and other marine mammals that they can live these exceptional lives in the sea, but always have to come up for air. 
you know, something that early whaling industry took great advantage of it in order to hunt them down was that they, they have to have, they have to blow, they have to yeah. come up and uh, exhale and inhale. Um, and that despite the fact that embryonically they form these gill clefts, they never reformed gills, which indicates that we're at something of a anatomical dead end or developmental dead end when it comes to our evolution to then re-evolve those types of ancestral structures mm. because of something in the in the mechanisms of our development precluding that, making it impossible. Now, there's other clever ways that critters have managed to respire underwater. Sea snakes are a great example in that we have this very minimal gas exchange across our skin, but they have ramped it up significantly. While we have about 1% to 2% of gas exchange to our skin, they're up to about 30%. And so some of these sea snakes that live in the pelagic ocean, they, they don't do the gills. They, they, they have found a different way. They still need some respiration, but they're able to deep dive and, and be really active for long periods of time by turning their skin into a breathing organ, into that respiratory integument. So what you're saying is we'll, we'll never get to live under the sea uh, again, or at least uh, it would take quite a long time to evolve those abilities. Guys, really fascinating stuff. I learned a lot from it. So thanks so much for, for joining us. Uh, that is uh, Ryan Kearney from Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania. Thanks, Ryan. Absolute pleasure, John. Thank you. I was fortunate enough a number of years ago to visit Sharm el-Sheikh and you can just jump into the water there and in the waters is the most extraordinary marine life. I didn't care much for the town to be honest, but in the water, the amount of fish and colorful creatures you could see was just, you were like jumping in, it was like jumping into an, an aquarium and the ability to do that for hours, to be able to swim underwater and just explore, that to me would be just an absolute dream, but it seems like it's not happening anytime soon without those really clumsy tanks and all that pain in the ass getting ready and then you've got to worry about dying, like all those things. It's 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 frustrating. Uh, right, let's talk about some of your comments from last week, shall we? Because we had a few. We were talking about immortality, if you um, were listening. A chap called Jose Luis Cordero was talking. I'm not quite sure. I mean, he is a engineer, an economist, a futurist, and a transhumanist, according to his bio. I, I don't know what like what he does, but he seems to be really interested in this idea of living forever and longevity, and he's got loads of things going on. He's a very interesting person. But he was talking about living forever and how this is going to happen and it's also going to be free and it's going to be the masses are going to have it, which a number of people weren't really keen on. Uh, Javier on Twitter says, your guest forgot to mention the dangers of immortal cells. Yeah, we were talking about HeLa cells, uh, which are uh, used in lots of labs. And he says, your guest forgot to mention the dangers of immortal cells, which like cancer are likely to behave unpredictably. Yes and no. I mean, it certainly... They have performed very well and underpinned a lot of research successfully, but nothing's perfect. But he, Javier also goes on to make probably a, a fairer comment. He says, not to mention the problems associated with an indefinitely growing world population. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how that's going to work. You're not going to stop people having children and you are not going to stop the population growing. Like after a while, 
we already have a problem after a while like very quickly I would think we've got a massive problem because um, we can't even look after the population that we have at the moment the idea of in just one one generation having 14 billion people on the planet no thank you and this says I'm sorry but who wants to still be alive when you're like physically 200 years old well the idea is that you are not physically 200 years old that you are physically 60 years old and still capable of playing squash and going for long walks with a significant other with a GSOH. That's the idea. The idea is that your rejuvenation keeps you fit and healthy until you're 200 years old. I would, I think I would get very bored. Like I do get bored a lot already and I haven't lived one life, let alone five lives worth or, or three or whatever. Depends on how optimistic you are, uh, however you interpret 200 years. But it's a bloody long time. Brendan also emailed he wasn't happy either uh, he says I was listening just now to that proponent of immortality such a dualistic reductionist view I can tell now this guy is smarter than me ignorant of the philosophical and metaphysical implications the place of finitude in the development of wisdom and compassion how we evolve through our encounter with suffering which gives rise to meaning itself I have lost that meaning I don't know what you mean let me just try it again Ignorant of the philosophical and metaphysical implications. So ignorant of, well, I'm not sure what the philosophical implications are, but I I understand you're saying too many people is bad. The place of finitude in the development of wisdom and compassion. I don't know what you mean, Brendan, but look, I'm sorry he annoyed you. Anyway, at least it was clear you weren't endorsing his views, says Brendan. I'm not. And I have to say, I'm not endorsing your views either because I don't understand them. But... Thank you for listening. Neve says, how can this work repopulation control? The world is already under pressure for resources. Very scary stuff. The rich keep themselves alive longer and take all the resources. What about new births? Nope. You have me uh, at 14 billion people, Neve. I totally agree. James has emailed in. We, would, we did a piece on measurement and how we used to measure things and how we measure things now, which is more interesting than it sounds, as I said yet last week. He says, love the show, Jonathan. And if I can't catch it live on Saturday, I'll always catch up on the podcast. Keep Keeping science accessible and interesting without ever dumbing down, chapeau. Oh, I'm afraid I've just dumbed down poor James's email. But nonetheless, James goes on. Well, thank you very much, James. But I think I'm just guilty of having just dumbed down poor Brendan's email. James goes on to say, I got the biggest laugh on what I think is a brilliant example of inadvertently proving a point hidden in the episode. Uh-oh. He says, when Jonathan checked Jessamine, on using pounds as a unit of weight and said only the metric system can be used in this program. Absolutely. We do not allow our guests to use the imperial system. He says, but before the end of the episode, his short-term memory challenges that he was talking about earlier in the show were proven when he mentioned miles as a unit of measurement at least twice when talking about the Jupiter mission. Keep up the good work, especially dealing with all the pedants like me. Well, we love a bit of pedantry, James, but... As host of the program, it is my prerogative to use either Imperial or Metric. I just don't allow the guests on the program to use Imperial, just to clarify. That's it from us on this week's program. Thanks to producer Marais O'Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt and Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. Don't miss it. It's a brilliant one where we're talking about AI being able to read minds. It's fascinating research. Look out for it. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.